Appreciate you, Coop. Thank you very much. I am Chris Cuomo, and welcome to Primetime. There is a proverb that some say came from Italy, but all of us know it to be true. And here it is. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. If you'll remember, we all had it cemented in our minds as right when a certain president reminded us by getting it wrong. Fool me once, shame on, shame on you. If fool me, we can't get fooled again. <laughs> Look, now we all know the proverb, okay? And in fact, that former president, George W. Bush, is among one of the few Republicans left who get the reality that his party is in a position of doubling down on a bad thing, a toxic tailspin. And it is time for all of us, especially the Democrats, to realize that they are about to get bitten by the minority party again, and they need to figure out what to do about it. I want you to remember 2010, then Senate minority leader Mitch McConnell made it clear what his mission was as it pertained to President Obama. Our top political priority over the next two years should be to deny President Obama a second term. And he meant it. People didn't believe it. They thought it was just talk. Today, he said it again. What is his mission with respect to President Biden? 100% of my focus is on stopping this new administration. This is why I say, don't pet the snake. And you know who knows all of this, and yet seems like he is willing to pet the python again? The man who was Obama's vice president for all that, President Biden. Listen. He said that uh, in our last administration, Barack, he was going to stop everything. And I was able to get a lot done with him. Was he? I mean, the president may be right on some essentials, but on the big ticket items that this president, Biden, now wants, let's remind, McConnell killed Obama's jobs plan. Never happened. Obama's infrastructure plan. Never happened. No to comprehensive immigration reform. Universal background checks never happened. Even with Aurora, Sandy Hook, Charleston, the Pulse nightclub tragedy. He never held a hearing for Merrick Garland's nomination to the Supreme Court and refused to fill more than 100 other judgeships. He then flipped the rule when they had power back. And we know what happened with the Supreme Court. And we know what's happened with the judgeships. Look, Biden should get this because he gets what the impetus for all this obstinance is. The party is all in on opposing Biden as a way to show fealty to Trump. And the president knows it. Listen. They're in the midst of a significant uh, sort of mini revolution. I don't ever remember any like this. We badly need a Republican party. We need a two-party system. It's not healthy to have a one-party system. And I think the Republicans are further away from trying to figure out who they are and what they stand for than I thought they would be at this point. 
Now, first, not only is he right that you knew two parties, but I think it's time for a real conversation about whether we should have three, four or five legitimate parties and have more stakeholders in our representative base of government. But that's not right now. Right now we're in a crisis. Biden's right, which is why he and the Democrats need to figure out how to get things done and fast or they will be fooled again. Instead of moving toward compromise, the GOPQ or the Republicans, whatever you want to call them, they're becoming more intent on us and them. No we. The politics of lie, defy, and deny. You know what we're all watching right now? The latest illustration, Liz Cheney, the number three in the House, right, of VP Cheney pedigree, now getting ousted. Why? Refusing to advance the big lie about the election. That's all. That's all it's taking. The current number three, she just put out a response tonight, you know, in this effort to stop the party from purging her from leadership. We're at a turning point. We've got to remember our values. We've got to remember our principles. It's going to fall on deaf ears. Why? Because this is all about being square with Trump and what he wants. Now, on the outside, the same Trumplicans who are trying to silence Cheney by taking away her right to speak as a leader are crying victim that their speech is being silenced by big tech. You see, this is what motivates their opposition. They attack, but then play the victim. They're now crying about Facebook, that the oversight board ruled to keep on banning Trump over the big lie and inciting a violent insurrection, with the caveat that a permanent decision needs to be made within six months. We're going to get into it and deeply tonight. Um, why? Well, is being online in this platform, Facebook or any of them, is it a right or a privilege? Is it their rules or is it yours or is it somebody else's? We're going to take that on and we have a key player. But first things first. We have the main Democrat to talk to in discussing what to do about the GOP double down on blocking a Democrat president. Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat from West Virginia. Good to see you, Senator. They won't know it by your name, but they should know it by your good looks and your heritage. You have oh, yeah. Italian, Italian blood in you. You know this proverb. Do you think that your party is being set up to be fooled again by Mitch McConnell? I don't think so. I really don't. First of all, Chris, it's always good to be with you. Uh, and next of all, I don't. And, and I'll give you a few examples. Uh, the hate crimes bill we just passed uh, two weeks ago, 94 to 1. I don't think there was a Democrat in the Congress or a senator in, in Congress, or especially in the Senate, that thought that that would pass by 94 to 1. We had an amendment process on the floor. I commend Chuck Schumer for allowing the amendments to be on the floor. The Republicans put their amendments up, which would have altered the bill. Mm -hmm. They failed in those amendments. We voted on the bill in its entirety, and it passed. I'll take you clear back to 2013, when was it, 2013 or 2015, I think. No, no, I'm sorry, 2017. John McCain at that time. Uh, they were trying to get under uh, uh, President Trump, trying to do away with the Affordable Care Act. And they voted that down, didn't do it. So I still have confidence, and I have faith that we will come together. I have faith that democracy will survive. But it can only survive as the republic that we know here that we live in is if there's a two-party system, at least a two-party system, but also a Senate that has minority input. And I'll remind you again, there was every year of, since Donald Trump was president, every year he tried to pressure my Republican colleagues to get rid of the filibuster so they could pass overreaching, overwhelming bills that would not be good for our country. I didn't think so. And they pushed back on that. And we're talking to a group of them right now. We're continuing to have good dialogue. So whatever Mitch McConnell, uh, Senator McConnell, I'm sorry, from Kentucky uh, said, as, you, as I just heard, 
I don't know what his reasoning is for that, but I can assure you there are Republicans working with Democrats to want to make something happen. But will they vote? You know, just for some context that you laid out in the history, McCain was the one vote that stood before between Trump getting what he wanted and not. There was one soul of conscience. And I take your point. So I don't see that as working together. But I do agree with you about process. I think it's the right thing to do to put it into committee, have the amendments, see the markup, uh, because then you allow good faith of process. That is minority involvement as envisioned by the founding fathers with respect to the Senate. The filibuster was not. You know your history. That comes out of Jim Crow. Uh, And even though the great senator from your state uh, was one of the authors of how to use it, uh, it was not from the founding fathers. It's not in the document. And it arguably has never been used to make anything great happen in this country. Well, I I think my my argument to you on this, uh, for the sake of discussion, uh, the Senate was designed to be different. I think you'll agree on that. Yes. Uh, And Bob Byrd used to, Robert C. Byrd used to explain to me, because when I was governor, we would talk and he was a great mentor and a great friend. And I said, Senator, I don't know much about the Senate. Explain to me why is the Senate so different? He said, Joe, the best way for me to explain it is that why does every state, can you imagine a little state of Rhode Island, a little state of Connecticut, I mean, of Delaware, having the same representation in the great body of the Senate as California or New York, uh, all these larger, much larger states in landmass and population? There's a reason for that. So how all this has evolved in some of these rules, I don't know, I mean, the intent uh, of why they would have done Jim Crow is not acceptable. It wasn't acceptable then. It's not acceptable now at all. And I think that we have to have a process. But also, I think you have to have minority. If not, then what we have is basically chaos. What goes around comes around here. I've been in the minority. It's not fun in the minority, I can assure you. But on the other hand, we had some opportunity to stop some things that basically we didn't think that would be good for America. That was what our position Listen, was. Listen, I hear you about and that, and I do now. think you're right that, look, yeah. in all due respect to your party, I don't think you guys play power politics as well as the other side. And I think that if you were to get rid of the filibuster, McConnell would use it against you guys when he gets back in power, and it's only a matter of time, in a way that you never even thought of using it. So I hear you on that. Well, and he could use it already. But I'm just saying, Senator, right now you have infrastructure, you have needs for families, uh, you have a lot of gross deficits that you're dealing with. There's a chance that you get none of it passed. Forget about, you know, background checks or anything like that. Let's see what we've done already, Chris. Yes, sir. Look what we've done. One point nine trillion dollars. Look what we did last year in all bipartisan way. Look what we've done this year. We didn't do it with a bipartisan way, but we did it right. because it needed to be done with the pandemic that we had. We did it at 1.9 trillion. But you didn't do we it did bipartisan. Have from the, from, no, we, we, we had a process of bipartisanship to a certain extent. But then there were no I wish votes. there would have been more. But there wasn't. But there was one. Well, we never, we, we didn't try. We had some votes as far as in the uh, in But the, they uh, went through the reconciliation we process, Senator, as you know. You went through reconciliation because they weren't going to work with you on it. McConnell had it locked yeah, down. Yeah, but then basically we... Then we did the hate crimes bill and we went through a process where we had amendments on the floor. Let the bills go through. Let's look at this infrastructure bill, truly on traditional infrastructure, and then one on human infrastructure. And basically look at the pay fors that we're willing to. And what Let if none of the, the Republicans so, will so, vote at the end of it? Would you reconsider how to get it done because you know well, how important it is? Well, then, then you have to basically look at what package we put forth that was reasonable, that basically everybody had input, and even if we made adjustments, let's say with amendments, and at the end of the day they don't vote for it, then we'll have another discussion then. So you're open to another discussion if they show bad faith after you give them due process? 
Well, you're talking about reconciliation. You're talking about starting out with reconciliation. No, I'm not. Where there's very little input. No, I'm not. There's I have argued your there. point consistently. I think you guys are making a mistake by forcing the process and allowing them to claim high ground and saying, look, they won't even let us look at these bills. They give us no input. I think you should have the amendment. I think you should we have the markups Joe and Biden, Joe. Go right, ahead, sir. Okay. We agree on that. Joe Biden has got more done in 100 days. But not with them. Any president in my time that I can recall. Not with them. Basically, he got more done. He's put a plan out there and he got more done. But not with and them. We got it done, okay? And but we're not moving with in the right them. direction. Not well, with you've them. Heard, but you've heard Joe Biden. He wants it to work. It will work. But I they don't it want work. it to work. He just told you, I'm faith. stopping the administration. He just said it to you. You sir. don't know. You don't. He just said it. That was one person. He's the head. That's one person. He's the leader. He doesn't, he's not controlling all of that. I can assure you, we would not be having the discussions. There wouldn't be an offer on the table of five or $600 billion of infrastructure. Some starting point, which I think is a good starting point. Let's look at what we've done. We've got to hold ourselves accountable and responsible. Let's make sure that the numbers we're putting out there is really going to have I have no problem with you guys be being fiscally responsible about it. But I would ask you one thing. I, I've heard you talk to me about Senator Byrd a couple of times about how the Senate was mm-hmm. set up to have a minority be part of uh, the power play. And I understand that. However, I don't know that they envisioned where you are in the Senate today, where you guys are 50-50, but 50 on the right are representing about 20% of the country. It's so skewed. And that 20% has such extreme views that that's why you have this party in disarray the way it is. You have 70% of the Republican Party saying that Trump won, that Biden didn't win. You really think that that's the kind of setup where they'll work with you? Well, that's a horrible situation. And basically the extremes on both sides There's people on both sides saying that we have 20% on each side or 30% on each side that's extreme. Okay, with that being said, you've got to find the middle. The middle's been eroded. We're trying to bring it back to where there's compromise. You can sit and talk and give and take and come up with a piece of legislation. You're not going to get 100% of everything. Joe Biden understands this Senate better than anybody. I've got confidence and faith that he understands it and he'll help us make it work. He's given us some openings now. He said, try to make it work. Have some votes. If you don't like it, vote it down, but at least get in the process. And that's all I'm trying to do. I have no problem with the the process process to work. I'm just assuming that there's going to be there's going to be bad faith. But I'm all about the process being played out. I don't think it should be a force of reconciliation. I've never suggested (laughs) that. And I appreciate you being here. I look forward to seeing the process play out and get your views as it moves along. I appreciate your candor, Senator. Thank you. All right. God bless and be well. We're always going to be. Well, thank you, my friend. Enjoyed being with you. Always a pleasure. All right. So now another way to look at why we have the tension within the right that we have right now. Okay, this big lie thing is toxic. It is a poison. And it stems from this president's pattern of perfidy. His perfect call with Ukraine's president. That's what got him impeached the first time. Okay. That's what birthed. Remember the rigged election stuff. Remember, that's what it was about. That there's fraud and it's coming through and Rudy's running around. Now we're going to get closer to the truth. Rudy Giuliani made a key call before the perfect call that Trump made to the president of Ukraine. And it left a top advisor to President Zelensky in, quote, a state of shock. Why? 
That Ukrainian advisor is here tonight to tell us what Rudy was asking for and more importantly, what, if anything, he was offering in exchange. I'm sure the FBI is listening. So should you. Next. Will Rudy Giuliani and maybe by extension former President Bush face legal consequences for their political actions? Um, what I say? Former President Trump, not Bush. I have him on a mind for the proverb. I shouldn't be fooled twice either. So the latest reporting is this. Rudy Giuliani's friends are pushing Donald Trump to pay the former mayor for his work on the big lie. Why? Well, one, Giuliani is looking at a growing pile of legal bills, and it really is true that Trump is not necessarily great when it comes to paying bills. But also, this all started with what Giuliani told you himself he was doing on this show. Listen. I was investigating, going back to last year, complaints that the Ukrainian people, several people in Ukraine, they were trying to get to us, but they were being blocked by the ambassador who was an Obama appointee in Ukraine, who was holding back this information. Now, he's talking about Yovanovitch. There are two things for you to remember in the setup to the interview we're about to do. One, there was never any shame in the Rudy Trump game. They were always open. Rudy, uh, Trump lied about it a little bit in the beginning, but eventually owned that Rudy was there for him. And Rudy always said, Rudy Giuliani, I was there to get them to do things, to find out what he believed they had on Biden. Okay, remember that. Now, the only reason that the FBI gets permission to search Giuliani's apartment is to see who he was working with in Ukraine. My next guest is uniquely situated to help answer those questions because he was on the phone when Giuliani tried to push his conspiracies to and on the Ukrainians. Igor Novikov is now former advisor to Ukraine President Zelensky and joins us now. Igor, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Chris. Hi. So is it accurate that Rudy Giuliani was initiating the requests and feeding Ukraine's president and others in authority in Ukraine what he wanted to be true about uh, then former VP Biden and his son. Well, the uh, first of all, the transcript is out there. So, mm -hmm. I mean, we can actually assess Rudy Giuliani's intentions in his own words. That's issue number one. Issue number two, yeah, we obviously got the sense that he was pressing hard to, uh, to get not only those investigations started, but to make a lot of public statements. So, to, I kind of, to me, it felt more about public statements than investigations. I felt like he had something already, whether it was Russian disinformation or whatever, and he just wanted Ukrainian officials to validate that. And plus, he threatened the national security in many other you know, peculiar ways. So uh, I think Time magazine will be running a story right. next week about his involvement with, with uh, a major defense contractor and the acquisition of it. And it was actually lobbied on behalf of some American investors by the infamous Mr. Durkach, who's, a, who's been designated as a Russian asset. Russian by by so, U.S. intel as yeah, well. And this was something that, that Rudy Giuliani hole. knew. Yeah. But let's, let's do this step by step. Um, one, 
Uh, sure. Rudy comes to you and says, I would like it if Ukraine's president or the government puts out certain statements about Biden. That's what you just said. Uh, you also said that he made certain threats about your national security. Was there a quid and a quo here? Was he asking for something and was he offering something? Well, uh, if we're talking about the conversation that happened on July 22nd, I would say there was an attempt at a quid pro quo. So basically he was asking for investigations and public statements and many other things. And in return, towards the end of the conversation, he mentions that that would make it possible for him to go and speak with President Trump to solve a problem that he admits to kind of putting in President Trump's head. So, I mean, that's pretty much the uh, gist of a conversation. And to kind of to assess the level to which he threatened our national security, let me remind you, we're a country fighting an active war with Russia for many years. So anything to do with swapping, you know, favors uh, within our bilateral relationship in exchange for trying to get us involved into U.S. domestic politics is just wrong on many levels, like morally, ethically, and probably even legally. So as far so as you know, what happened there. Ukraine's president and none of the people in power in the government went to Rudy and said, we have truth about the Bidens that needs to come out. Definitely no one from the uh, Zelensky administration, at least initially. I mean, we had some people, obviously, Rudy was tempting a lot of people. So uh, I am familiar with a few cases when people got tempted and tried to flirt with them. Uh, but I would say that initially, no, nobody from Zelensky's administration mm -hmm. approached them, uh, him with that information. I mean, now, the big political play for Rudy vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine involved then Ambassador Yovanovitch. He wanted her out. And as he said to me on national world television, uh, he didn't like that she was in the way and she was an Obama appointee, et cetera, et cetera. What was your experience with then Ambassador Yovanovitch? And was she someone that Ukraine wanted removed? Well, Ukraine, I mean, I didn't have the uh, pleasure of meeting her because I joined the team uh, after she left, unfortunately. But um, from what I've heard from people who worked with her and knew her, that, you know, it was a definite loss for Ukraine and for our bilateral relationship. And there's more to this story because um, I've had a couple of conversations with people, you know, from the uh, presence in the circle. And there was a lot of... Uh, negativity towards Ambassador Yovanovitch. And, you know, when we kind of dug deeper, it turned out there was no basis for that negativity. So it was a question of who was feeding that as well. So, I mean, there are many mysteries left unsolved in this whole story. Who do you think was feeding Giuliani information other than Durkash, who, again, is somebody that the United States intel agencies believe is a Russian agent? Well, initially, uh, we had the duo of Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman. Uh, to my knowledge, uh, to my factual knowledge, they approached numerous members of Zelensky's inner circle. And uh, Lev Parnas was present in a meeting with Andrei Yermak, then aide to President Zelensky and now his chief of staff, in Madrid, the infamous meeting. Unfortunately, I was supposed to go to that meeting, but it so happened I didn't. So although initially we kind of we had this game plan that, you know, when it comes to Rudy Giuliani, there'll always be two people present. So we had the witness. But Madrid, unfortunately, it turned out the other way. So it was just Andrei Yermak. Uh, then once uh, Parnas and Fruman got indicted, we had, you know, substitutes join the, you know, the playing field. So we had Andrei Artomenko, 
uh, and Andrei Derkach, and obviously uh, a deputy called Mr. Dubinsky as well. But to my knowledge, he wasn't playing as much of an active role as Derkach and Artemenko. Hmm. Um, you mentioned earlier Mr. Giuliani's potential involvement in a defense contracting firm, Time Magazine, a lot of people are reporting on it. But in terms of what you know or have heard or believe is credible as a suggestion, the idea that Giuliani may have been engaged in undisclosed foreign lobbying, either for officials in Ukraine or business interests in Ukraine, at the same time that he was seeking the ouster of the U.S. ambassador, Yovanovitch, do you believe that those are questions worth pursuing, and do you have any reason to believe that? Well, I definitely think they're worth pursuing. I mean, I wouldn't go as far as to evaluate them because I don't have you know, enough legal background, uh, background within legal profession to kind of to assess it. But definitely that episode needs to be pursued further, uh, as are a couple of other episodes. So the defense contractor acquisition needs to be looked at. Uh, the Durkach tapes, the infamous Durkach tapes need to be looked at because, I mean, uh, that was a definite attempt to get Ukraine once again you know, one another attempt to get us involved into U.S. domestic politics, and thank God we, we can we contain that threat as well. Again, yeah. are you open to working with the United States Department of Justice? I said it publicly. As long um, as I can do it within my legal limits as a Ukrainian citizen, and as long as it's nonpartisan, non-political, so it's uh, a criminal investigation of something that I believe believe threatened kind of our national security, threatened, you know, the uh, security of our relationship. And I think to a degree security in Europe in general, you know, given Russia's aggressive uh, moves towards Ukraine and towards you know, other countries, I would say yes, I definitely would. Uh, Igor, one last question quickly. Why now? Why are you speaking out now? Well, um, I mean, I've, people ask me that question many times. So uh, let me give you this answer. I mean, I'm a foreign, former advisor, so I can speak, you know, uh, truthfully, honestly, and without, you know, any uh, correction for, you know, my political views. So I, I'll tell you this. Look, I mean, put yourself uh, in our shoes. Uh, what happened to us on that phone call, on the perfect phone call after that, you know, with all the pressure that we experienced, I mean, we did nothing to displease, you know, Mr. Giuliani. And that still happened to us. Can you imagine what would have happened to my country if we pushed back? You Understood. Know, before you know, the election was over. Understood. I don't like it, but I understand it. Uh, and from your perspective, I understand it. Mr. Novikov, thank you very much for coming on the show tonight, and good luck going forward. Thank you. Now, thank you. that is a big reason why the federal government is investigating Rudy Giuliani. That perspective of what he was doing there does not square with what he wanted us to believe and what former President Trump wanted us to believe. What will they be able to prove? We'll see. Now, on another level of controversy, Trump is no longer on Facebook for at least another six months. That's what their board decided. Is that the right choice? Let's bring in a congressman who is in the center of this controversy, Congressman Ro Khanna of California. His district, located in the heart of Silicon Valley, but the issues matter very much to him. Was this the right move, and what's the next move? Next. You know the headline by now. Former President Trump is still banned from Facebook for at least six more months. 
So Trump and co, many on the right are crying, big tech tyranny, free speech, free speech. First, look at the most popular sites and posts on Facebook, okay? When it comes to politics, most of the top ones that get the most wattage are all from the right. So I don't know what they're complaining about. But also, I don't know what they're complaining about legally. The First Amendment doesn't say nobody can tell you what to say ever anywhere. It's about the government, right? You've read it. The government may make no law restricting your speech, but this is a business. So is this okay? Is it okay even with an official, let alone a president? Or is Facebook and the other social media platforms different than other businesses? This is a long conversation, but let's stick to the specific instance right now. Democratic Congressman Ro Khanna, whose district is right in the heart of Silicon Valley, but he cares about this issue, and it is something we're going to have to deal with. Uh, You believe this was the right call for Facebook, but let's talk about why. Do you believe that they are just like any other business and they are entitled to uh, judge service as a privilege? And as long as it's not a protected class that they're excluding, they can say no shirts, no shoes, no service. Chris, yes, as long as they're being consistent about it. And as you pointed out, the top sites on Facebook are all conservative sites. Ben Shapiro, Sean Hannity, Fox News. They're not discriminating based on viewpoint. Here they're making a judgment that they don't want speech that's going to incite violence that led to the death of a police officer. I think that's perfectly appropriate. Now, people will say, well, they're a publisher. I I don't get it. I don't see it legally because, you know, CNN, Time Magazine, these are publishers in terms of how the law sees them because they control the content. This place, they just basically own the building, Facebook, right, metaphorically, and then anybody can come in there and they don't know who's saying what. They wouldn't be able to check it in real time. So what do you think is the right fix to balance people's interests in what they're exposed to and the interest of the business to run a business? I think you need more competition. You should have not just Facebook, where you have Zuckerberg and one board making a decision. You should have multiple social media sites. And that's why I thought the merger of WhatsApp and Instagram was unfortunate. Look, Chris, if you told someone, Ro Khanna is a horrible guest, my ratings go down, I never want him on the show again, I don't have any First Amendment right to protest. I could write letters, people could complain, but ultimately it's your decision. And it's ultimately Facebook's decision, we just don't want them to be a monopoly. Because you want to have people that have alternatives if you don't like their rules. Because at the end of the day, illegally, you believe as it stands without legislation, it is a privilege to be on there. It's not a right. Even if you're a president, even if you're a congressman, that they can prescribe what you're saying. Are you okay with that? Actually, if you're a president or a congressman, you have a lot of other venues and avenues. Uh, The bigger risk is if you're just an ordinary citizen. And I think that's why they said we have to be very careful before permanent deplatforming. And I thought that was judicious because you don't want a situation where many people could be deplatformed for life. But yes, they have the right uh, to make these determinations as long as they're being consistent. What do you think happens next? Do you think there's any chance that there will be a move to legislate what can and can't be done there? I do. I think we have to be very careful in reforming Section 230. But here's what I think we can do. If a court finds that there is speech that is inciting violence, that's actually going to lead to a threat that's actionable, then I think the court should be able to order these social media sites to take it down. That's not the current law. Mm. Rokana, thank you very much. There's more conversation to be had as we see what happens next. You're always welcome here to make the case. And thank you. Thank you, Chris. All right. Be well. Now, many on the right, are arguing something else when it comes to what's real and what isn't. There is no systemic racism in America. There are far too many who don't understand what racism is. And one of them, I think, is a lawmaker from Tennessee. 
Our job is to expose and oppose injustice. That will happen here next. I hope you get why I harp on the big lie as much as we do on the show here. I know it's easy to show that it is a big lie, um, many different ways, but it's because the big lie is an and. It's not an end in itself. This isn't just about warping reality with the election. It's about warping reality, period. If they get you on that, then it's easier to get you on the next thing. Rewriting history. Why do I say this? Such an ugly suggestion. Because it's happening. This Tennessee state representative, Justin Lafferty, he suggested that the infamous, and it is infamous, not famous, infamous, notorious, three-fifths compromise was actually a good thing. The three-fifths compromise was a direct effort to ensure that southern states never got the population necessary to continue the practice of slavery everywhere else in the country. By limiting the number of population in the count, they specifically limited the number of representatives that would be available in the slaveholding states, and they did it for the purpose of ending slavery. That would be true if three-fifths applied to all men. Then it would have been a move to put in a formula to reduce participation and value of the same, and then he would be right. But that's not what they did. They only did it for black men. The worst part, he walked off the House floor unchallenged and to applause. Now, this is not the first time we've heard this from the right. Glenn Beck, 2010, to another lawmaker just two weeks ago in Colorado. Uh, The three-fifths compromise, of course, was an effort by non-slave states to not to try to reduce the amount of representation that the slave states had. It was not impugning anybody's humanity. What? does it do to tell somebody they are three-fifths of a person? And not every person, only black persons. Come on. Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution said enslaved people were three-fifths of all other persons. You know why? Because it was about keeping them unequal. Just think about how high that is in the Constitution. Article 1, Section 2. It was in the second part behind legislative powers being vested in Congress. That's above your rights. It's above the amendments. Free speech, freedom of religion. Those are all add-ons. It wasn't about ending slavery. Historians say it did the opposite. It sanctioned. It sanctioned it at a new level, a national level. What this comes down to is power, and they wanted black people to have less. The South only wanted enslaved blacks to count to boost their voting number at a time only white land-owning men could vote. Why? More money from the feds, more representation in Congress, more power. Northern states didn't want the South to be too powerful, and so they compromised. The result, America's original sin was put into its most sacred document, the Constitution. Why is it being brought up now? A half dozen are taking up measures that would ban or limit the teaching of systemic racism in their curriculums. It is a literal attempt to whitewash history 
for the purposes of power. This is why you have in the vernacular history or his story, meaning the story of the white man that wants to whitewash what was done. Now, on the back of an election that they lost because a lot of people came out who don't usually come out, and a lot of them weren't white, and in the middle of a reckoning with race, this is their front, culture war. You're being lied to as white people. You're being made to feel shame that you shouldn't. Lafferty's office didn't respond to multiple messages from CNN seeking comment. I would have had him on tonight to have this. During his speech, he admitted he hadn't looked up the three-fifths compromise before delivering his remarks, saying he was rolling off of memory here. Let's take it to the better minds. How do you change minds in America? How do you deal with this? What is the context? What is the move? Good people, good minds. Next. The three-fifths compromise is coming out of conservative faces again, and as a good thing, why? Let's bring Van Jones and Ashley Allison in right now to discuss. Uh, Allison, uh, Ashley Allison, let me start with you about this. Why now, and what does it mean? It's unbelievable, it's disrespectful, and it's unacceptable. You know, the three-fifths compromise was really the first time, or one of the first times America said black lives didn't matter. It was an example that black lives did not have the same value in the people who had power at that time as their white counterparts. And so it is connected. You know, uh, Lafferty, who, who made these comments, and these other representatives who made these comments, they are connected to the big lie. It's a lie that the three-fifths clause was what Lafferty said it was. It's a lie that it was an effort to end slavery. We know that the three-fifths clause actually gave Southern uh, slave states more power and more representation, uh, exploiting black bodies. But it also is connected to the voter suppression attacks that we see in this country, the discrediting of the election that Trump is continuing to push. So I'm not surprised that it's coming up now because it's all connected in an effort to whitewash history and continue to perpetuate the big lie. I make no joke, Van, about Lafferty and laughable. Uh, because this isn't funny, uh, it's dangerous, and it's being echoed. Now, what do you think they want to get out of it? Well, I, I just think that, uh, <clears throat> first, let me just, just echo my, my colleague. I mean, it's literally ludicrous. And he said that this was an attempt to end slavery. Well, it took 90 years <laughs> afterwards. So if that's what they were trying to do, they were really bad at their job. Uh, worse than that, um, you know how bad the three-fifths compromise was? Go to the Jefferson Memorial and read in marble and stone his words. Jefferson says, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just. And his reflection on the failure of this country as a slave owner to abolish slavery is that profound. He says he he trembles for America. He thought, now, why should we feel better about the Constitution than Jefferson did when he was there to help write it? Why is this party so interested in trying to polish this up? It's because they don't want to deal with the present. They don't want to deal with the fact that you have an African-American community that is mobilizing, that is voting, that is exercising our full humanity. And I'm a ninth generation American, by the way. It wants our family's histories to be reflected in the history of the country. And that makes them uncomfortable in the present. So they go back and come up with ludicrous, ludicrous stuff. The founders themselves 
called it a compromise. They didn't say this is some great thing. When, the, when you're saying something, well, here's a compromise, right. that probably means it's not that awesome. Well, and so it's, it's, that's where we are. True. Last word to you, Ashley, within the context of this. It was a compromise for white people. Exactly. Uh, you know, it's easy to compromise when it's not you who's going to get sliced uh, as a fraction of your own humanity. So what is the move now? How is this to be responded to? Well, I think one of the most important things we have to do is call out lies and call out a whitewashing of history when we see it. You know, people sometimes criticize progressives or activists or protesters who want to demand justice and not wait and not let it linger, but to address it head on. We have to do it in our education system. I'm a former teacher. And when I was teaching my students, even when conversations were challenging, we have to be courageous and bold. The people who are pushing this are are elected officials. They are supposed to be our leaders and they are failing the children that they're, they're supposed to be leading this country for. They're failing their constituents and they're failing our country. So we have to address it head on. We cannot turn a, a blind eye when we hear things like this being I pushed. And I think one of the conversations that's been raised right now is the uh, addressing it through a critical race theory lens and being comfortable with saying racism was a part of this country's origin story and it still exists in Continues this country today. and we can't be afraid to talk about it. That's why we're here. Thank you for exposing and opposing. Ashley Allison, good to have you. Van Jones, always a pleasure, brother. Thank you. We'll be right back. Time for the big show, CNN Tonight, and the big star, D. Lemon. 41% of people polled believe that they that don't like your hair. The Civil War happened for a reason other than slavery. Oh, yeah. 41%. States' rights. People believe that what ended slavery was the Emancipation Proclamation, not the 13th Amendment. Yeah. And in this cesspool of ignorance, you hear lawmakers starting to say three-fifth compromise was yeah. a good thing. Yeah. Helped end slavery. It's... <sighs> so, uh, yeah, I talk about that a lot. and Not uh, enough. Obviously so. But that's the ignorance of people who don't know the history of the country. But quite frankly, it's on us because we don't demand that our educators, that our teachers as young as elementary school, we don't demand that they teach the true history of this country. What they're teaching is the whitewash history. What you have is a bunch of you have what you have are a bunch of people who are sitting around, mainly parents and I'm sure some educators who have this old school thinking about Columbus sailed the ocean blue and discovered America. That's not, that's part of the history of this country, not necessarily the discovering part, but there's also another big part of the history about the contributions of enslaved people, the contributions of people who came over and were indentured servants, uh, people who, the, the Italians who came over, the Irish who came over, all of those things. But mostly, our history is taught to elevate some people and to diminish other people. And the diminished part is mostly, are mostly people of color. Listen, this is, you know, people say you promote the book all the time because my book talks about everything that we're talking about Why wouldn't you promote the book? Because I, well, I I, I don't know. You should. You wrote the book. It's valuable. It's exactly this kind of conversation. This is exactly what I talk about, the history of the country, things that people don't know, like I wrote about the German upcoast rising in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. You never hear about that in in the history books. You don't hear people get upset about the 1619 Project. There's nothing wrong with teaching the 1619 Project. 
and then teaching what happened when the, in 1776. They can coexist without one and just one and just the other. But we have to start from a place of truth. And I, I've been saying this since January 6th. If you start from a place of truth, you don't end up with an insurrection in the country that is built on a lie, that people think the country was built in their image, therefore it should reflect Maybe. everything about them, and that the election should go the way that they want. That is where it starts. It should start with the truth. There is a seed. The truth well, about look, the history. Starting with the truth is always helpful, as long as people want to hear it. That's my concern here. Yeah, but I didn't How? want to, Chris, I get it. Look, I know, and I'm going to let you go on. I didn't want to hear about calculus. I didn't want to hear about trigonometry. I didn't want to hear about geometry. I didn't want to hear about uh, history class. But that's not what school is about. Most kids wake up and they don't want to go to school in the morning. I'm well what aware. Does that, what does that have to do with anything? Because you don't want to hear it. Here's, no, I, you're I'd right. rather be on the playground. You're, I had to go to catechism like you. But apparently I was better at catechism than you. You're better at everything other than <laughs> shutting up. Now the, look, you are right. But here's my concern about this. It's not just ignorance. It's an arrogance that they are bringing up this three-fifth compromise stuff for a reason. And it's not because they don't know what the three-fifth compromise is, and they don't remember Article 1, Section 2, and they don't understand what it was, and they don't remember Dred Scott. I don't think it's just ignorance. I think this is their way of countering that we are at a place in our cultural development right now where people want a reckoning on race. And this is their way, this is my analysis, of saying, don't listen to them about all the, how black people had it so bad. The three-fifths compromise, you know, wasn't even that bad. Next it's going to be, do you know how great 40 acres and a mule was? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know a lot of them didn't get it. That was a great deal. A lot of them didn't get it? <laughs> but I'm saying, <laughs> I've never seen it. there's got to be a reason. Yeah. And it's not just ignorance and it's not just racism. It's something pernicious and wicked that they're trying to do. Hmm? Racism is you promoting something inferior about a group of so people. So is it white supremacy? What is it? I don't know what their end game is. What do they want? What do they want white people to feel that they don't have to worry about anything else? Yeah, is this yeah, a way to feed into white they replacement don't want the country theory? To change. Like, what is it? That, that you know, as long as the country, as long as the history books read the way they read, as long as people think falsely what they think about our history, then everything is okay. And there it is no systemic inequality, so there's nothing to be corrected. Well, there's nothing else, Chris. There's no, that answers your question. You don't mm -hmm. know what it is. It's white supremacy. That's what it is. It's, it's, that, that's a simple answer. And it's the desire to avoid the reality of systemic inequality. Yeah, because you don't want to change. I'm all about changing. That's why I got my haircut. Yeah, uh, everybody uh, loves what's, it. What's the what's the where'd you get your haircut? Everybody loves it. I just want to know so I don't go there Every, any, again. You're not allowed anywhere. there because you only have to pay if you go there, and you want everything for free when I'm around. <laughs> Goodbye. Listen, thank you for keeping the education 40 coming. Forty acres and a mule. Thank you. <laughs> you wait. Go you on. wait. You you mock it now, and I guarantee you, somehow it's going to come up and be like, we already did more for them than anybody else ever had done. You'll see. You'll see that that's where this goes. I live it. But I, I appreciate it. you expanding the dialogue, and people should read your book. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I love you, D. Lemon. All right. Wow. You too. Well, you're banging on the hair, but, you know, you're, you're pushing it. This I love it. Is 
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.